TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Uno, dos, one, two, tres, cuatro. Today's special is Memphis Soul Stew. I can't stand the rain. I'm a rep this here till I walk up on death down in the past. Yeah, Memphis, Tennessee. Memphis, Tennessee. 901 Shelby Drive. Look alive, look alive. Down in the sweet old Memphis, Tennessee, y'all. Hello and welcome to Memphis Musicology, the official podcast of the Memphis Rock and Soul Museum. As always, I'm your host, Ezra Wheeler. So today on the show, we're going to be uh, talking about a type of song that is regularly maligned, ridiculed, mocked, and, you know, oftentimes for good reason. But do cover songs really deserve their bad reputation? I think when you consider some of the most beloved and exemplary songs in Memphis music history... You're faced with countless cover songs that not only built on, the, built on the original, but in some cases, you know, completely overshadowed it. I'm talking about songs like Elvis Presley's Hound Dog, which was originally performed by Big Mama Thornton, of course, Johnny Cash's Ring of Fire from Anita Carter, and perhaps the best of all, Aretha Franklin's Respect, which of course began as an Otis Redding tune, and which we'll discuss a little later on in the show. But today, I want to focus more on the kind of hidden gems of the genre, those great covers that exist deeper in an artist's catalog, but really which exemplify their ability to reimagine and reinterpret an oftentimes well-known song and to something altogether new. So we're going to start off with three covers by Memphis artists of other Memphis, or excuse me, of other musicians' tunes, and then kind of switch gears and discuss some of the best covers of Memphis classics. So let's just jump right into it. First artist I want to talk about is probably one of the greatest talents ever at taking a song, deconstructing it, and then reassembling it into something completely different. And frequently much funkier. I'm talking about Isaac Hayes, Mr. Black Moses, uh, probably the only man on earth who could turn a Burt Bacharach tune into this sprawling, sweaty, soulful jam session. But today I want to talk about his version of a song from another soul brother of the era, Mr. Bill Withers. So Bill Withers, as you probably know, or as you should know, was the West Virginia-born soul singer responsible for such iconic songs as Lean On Me and Just the Two of Us. And his understated music was really a clear inspiration to Isaac Hayes during the early 70s as he went on to cover two of Bill Withers' tracks, uh, that famous lover's lament, Ain't No Sunshine, and the funky classic, Use Me. So today we're going to focus on the latter of those two songs, which... Uh, Isaac Hayes first recorded for his album Live at the Sahara Tahoe, which was his very first live album recorded in 1973. So Isaac's version was cut just a few months after Bill Withers had released his original, which I think makes it uh, fall into that rare category of instant classic. So as you'll hear, Isaac Hayes did his, you know, Isaac Hayes thing to the track, adding various instruments, his signature raps, and just kind of an overall lushness to the track. So I think uh, one could reasonably argue that, 
You don't need to do that. That the beauty of Bill Withers is his kind of stripped down approach to music. But and that's fair. I, I kind of agree. But there's just something so much fun about Isaac's over the top approach that I really love, and hopefully you will too. So let's take a quick listen to Bill Withers' original of "Use Me," followed by Isaac Hayes' live version. My friends feel it's their appointed duty. They keep trying to tell me here. cover song I want to discuss comes from the Memphis Garage Rock Band, Raining Sound, and it's actually a song that you can hear a snippet from in our intro music, so if it sounds familiar, that may be why. Anyway, I did. I felt obligated to include this one, uh, not only because it's one of my all-time favorite covers, but because on last week's episode, Jim Dickinson said this, which immediately uh, made me smile just out of recognition. And again, every every band my age and a little younger did their version of Stormy Weather. I mean, you weren't from Memphis if you couldn't play Stormy Weather, you know. Yes, Stormy Weather, that classic torch song that was first performed by jazz singer Ethel Waters at the Cotton Club in Harlem back in 1933, and which has been covered by everyone from Frank Sinatra to Etta James to Billie Holiday. It's also, I learned from Mr. Dickinson's interview, apparently a long-standing standard on the uh, Memphis music scene. But despite being a frequently covered track, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anything approaching the 2002 version from Raining Sound, who somehow turned, uh, in the the kindest way possible, a schmaltzy, sentimental love song into really a rocking garage rock banger. That's often the case in Memphis music. The past is prologue, but just a little messier. So let's take a quick listen to the original 1933 version of the song from Miss Ethel Waters followed by the 2002 version from The Raining Sound. Uh, I imagine it'll be hard to reconcile the fact that you're hearing two versions of the same tune. Don't know why There's no sun up in the sky Stormy weather Since my man and I ain't together Keeps raining all the 
Life is bare, gloom and misery everywhere, stormy weather. Just can't get my poor self together. I'm weary all the time. and final cover by a Memphis artist I want to highlight today comes from not one, not two, but three Memphis legends who teamed up for a strange and delightful album called, appropriately enough, Jam Together. So in 1969, Booker T and the MG's guitarist Steve Cropper, uh, blues legend Albert King, and the staple singer's patriarch pop staple put their collective powers together to record a very guitar-heavy album of both covers and originals. So while it isn't necessarily essential listening, at least from that era of stacks, it's pretty badass stuff nonetheless, and I actually really enjoyed it. Especially when you realize that Pop Staple was actually a pretty accomplished guitar player in his own right. So Steve Cropper said in an interview, quote, most serious guitar players, especially the rhythm guys, must have listened to Pops. Everybody wanted to copy that tremolo sound because he was one of the first guys to do it. Well, there you go. Learn something every day. Anyway, one of the tracks off of that Jam Together album is a song from another legend with deep, deep Memphis roots, blues superstar John Lee Hooker, whose song Tupelo is an album highlight. So John Lee Hooker wrote the song in 1959 about the great 1927 flood that destroyed much of the Mississippi Delta, and he really sings it in an almost whisper, which is emulated by Pop Staple in the cover, at least to an extent. Uh, Pop does little, let loose a little more but. Very kind of quiet, subdued. So while the two versions of the song share more similar similarities than you know the other tracks we've heard today, I definitely think that they're distinct enough to warrant inclusion. Also, I kind of just wanted to tell y'all about that album. Jam together. Check it out. Anyway, here's John Lee Hooker with his original of Tupelo, followed by Steve Cropper, Pop Staple, and Albert King. Read about the flood. Happened a long time ago. In Tupelo, Mississippi. Of a thousand alive. Destroyed. It rained, it rained. 
both night and day. The poor people was worried. Didn't have no place to go. You could hear many people crying loud. How much is You are the only one that we can turn to. It's been a long time ago. Lord, have mercy. Where can we go now? There was women and there was children screaming and crying. Lord, have mercy. In this great disaster, who can we go to now but you, Lord? In this great flood of Tupelo, Mississippi, it happened one evening, one Friday evening. All right, now we're going to switch things up just a little bit and play a few tracks, uh, a few great cover songs of Memphis songs from non-Memphis artists, including this track, which is probably the only one maybe you've heard. Uh, it's often featured on the list of the best covers of all time, and for pretty good reason. So in 1978, the Talking Heads released their cover of Al Green's classic, Take Me to the River, which marked the only occasion that that avant-garde new wave band ever recovered another artist's song on record. Anyway, the original version was written by Al Green and high rhythm guitarist Tini Hodges while they were on retreat at a lake in Hot Springs, Arkansas, back in 1974. So the song touches on the classic themes for Al Green, specifically the struggle between the religious and the earthly, which, if you're an Al Green fan, you know that's probably the defining tension of both his life and his music. As Al Green said about the song, quote, I was trying to get more stability in my life, so I wrote, Take Me to the River, Wash Me Down, Cleanse My Soul. Producer Willie Mitchell later said, It's almost a gospel song. The music is R&B all the way, but the words, it's really a message song. Anyway, the song was never released as an Al Green single, but uh, in a few short years, it was covered by everyone from label mate Syl Johnson to the band Foghat to the band's Leon Helms. But it wasn't until the quirky band from New York City covered it that it became a beloved favorite. So apparently the, the Talking Heads had, a lo- had long been fans of Al Green, and as Ramon's bassist D.D. Ramon called about being on tour with them, D.D. said, quote, Man, they were so strange. We were into the Sex Pistols and stuff like that, and they were into this whole funky thing. They were always listening to Al Green. So in the liner notes for the band's greatest hits album, Once in a Lifetime, Seeger David Byrne wrote, quote, Coincidence or Conspiracy? There were at least four cover versions of this song out at the same time. Foghat, Brian Ferry, Le- Levon Helm, and us. More money for Mr. Green's full gospel tabernacle church, I suppose. A song that combines teenage lust with baptism. Not equates, you understand, but throws them in the same stew at least. A potent blend. All praise the mighty spurt in Jesus. So the cover became the group's very first hit song, and really remained a staple of their live performances for decades. They actually often ended with it. It was such a crowd favorite. 
So without further ado, let's take a listen to Al Green's 1974 version of Take Me to the River, followed by the Talking Heads. I'd like to dedicate this song to little Junior Parker. A cousin of mine that's going on, but we'd like to kind of carry on in his name. I sang. next cover song I want to highlight has had a long and strange life, beginning in 1959 with Memphis blues master Bobby Blue Bland's original version, then all the way to a 2010 cover song by singer Gil Scott Heron of The Revolution Will Not Be Televised fame, then a remix by producer Jamie XX of the group The XX, and then again when Drake and Rihanna sampled the remix a few years later for the track Take Care. Confused? Let me back up. So in 1959, Bobby Bluebland recorded the song I'll Take Care of You, which was part of a string of hits from him uh, in the late 50s and early 60s that included Farther Up the Road, Turn On Your Love Lights, I Pity the Fool. And uh, Bobby Bland was really a pioneer at synthesizing Southern blues with kind of classy big band arrangements, uh, making him one of the key figures in modernizing the blues alongside artists like Ray Charles and Junior Parker. And I'll Take Care of You as a great example of that signature sound. So nearly 50 years later, after the original, Gil Scott Heron uh, included the song on his final studio album, I'm New Here, which was really a radical departure from his earlier funk and soul style. So that album was described as postmodern blues, and it really kind of blended traditional blues with electronica, um, hard to describe, but it, it's pretty interesting. Anyway, the breakout song from that album was his version of I'll Take Care of You. So the next year, producer Jamie XX worked alongside Gil Scott Heron to remix the album, which was released just three months before Heron's death. And once again, the most popular tune from that remix album was probably the reimagined version of I'll Take Care of You, which was kind of a ubiquitous tune for a while. I feel like it was in commercials. It was just in the ether. Anyway, later that same year, Drake uh, strongly sampled the song on Take Care, the title track of his second album. So in other words, a 1959 Bobby Blue Band uh, track eventually led to the title of a Drake album and a hit single 50 years later. Strange indeed. Anyway, today I want to play the remix version of the Gil Scott Heron's cover of I'll Take Care of You, 
which of course will be preceded by the haunting Bobby Blue Bland original. Enjoy. I know you've been hurt by someone else. I can tell by the way you carry yourself. But if you let me, here's what I'll do. I'll take care of you. Love and lost The same as you So you see I know Just what you've been through But if you left me Here's what I'll do Oh, I just got to take care of you You want ever have to worry final song that I want to play today comes from a man who no city can fully claim due to his mysterious and rambling nature, but who spent as much significant time in Memphis as anywhere else on earth. Man, I'm talking about is Robert Johnson, one of the greatest blues musicians to ever live and the famous subject of that well-known Faustian myth about selling his soul to the devil at the crossroads of Mississippi in exchange for his incredible guitar playing ability. Today we're going to focus on his song, Stop Breaking Down, which he recorded in 1937 during his final recording session before dying a true bluesman's death of drinking poison whiskey. So the song is considered one of his most upbeat, uh, which is pretty funny and just really illustrates the dark nature of most of his music because this is certainly wouldn't be my choice to play at a party. Anyway, like most of his songs, Stop Breaking Down failed to generate much attention during his lifetime, but small circle of Mississippi blues musicians kept the song alive until it was discovered by a new generation of musicians like Junior Wells, Buddy Guy, and Sonny Boy Williamson, and then eventually those blues-inspired rock groups like the Rolling Stones and the White Stripes, who have all covered it. But today I want to play a version from the self-described noise terrorist Pussy Galore, a Washington, D.C.-based punk and garage band that included John Spencer, later of the John Spencer Blues Explosion, Neil Haggerty of Royal Trucks, and Sonic Youth drummer Bob Burt. Quite a collection. So the group covered the song in their 1986 debut, which was only available on cassette. So while technically it's a cover of Robert Johnson, the group was actually covered the Rolling Stones version, which they had been dared to do by Sonic Youth. It's rough and weird and noisy, and I think it's pretty cool. So here's Robert Johnson with the original version of Stop Breaking Down, followed by Pussy Galore. Walking 
down the street. Some pretty mama start breaking down with me, start breaking down. Yes, yeah, start breaking down. The stuff I got to bust your brains out, baby. It'll make you lose your mind. Now contemplate my mind Some no good woman She starts breaking down Start breaking down Please Start breaking down The stuff I got Gonna bust your brain down It'll make you lose your mind Every time I walk in I'm down the street some grandmas stop breaking down on me, stop breaking down. Well, that'll do it for cover songs today, and hopefully if you're a cover song hater, then I hope to change your mind at least a little bit. But we're not done yet, as we do from time to time. We're going to head over to the crate to check out some of the greatest albums in Memphis music history. on the crate i wanted to focus on what is arguably the greatest album from one of if not the greatest singers of all time so at the time of this recording the queen of soul aretha franklin has just passed away under that great gig in the sky coincidentally on the same date that we lost both elvis presley and robert johnson so while i didn't have time to assemble an entire assemble an entire episode on her i did want to take time to talk about her 1967 album i never loved a man the way i love you so at this point, Aretha Franklin's reign uh, has been so strong for so long that for many of us, I think it's almost impossible to imagine a world without her or her influence. She's simply a fact of life, and imagining it in any other way is really a near impossibility. But before she became the queen, Aretha was just another talented singer struggling to grab her piece of the pie. So as a teenager, Aretha released her debut album, Songs of Faith, which was a fairly straightforward gospel album. Well, if you can call anything featuring that voice straightforward. Following that, she decided to follow in the footsteps of her hero, Sam Cooke, and go secular, which led her to a contract with Columbia Records that really promised to put her unique talents to their best use. So for the next six years, between the ages of 18 and 24, Aretha recorded classic pop music in the vein of a Dinah Shore or a Tony Bennett, kind of crooning over these lush orchestrations in search of crossover appeal. And if that sounds strange, it's because it was. And Aretha was never able to reach anything other than modest success. At the same time, the then 24-year-old singer was raising small children. She was stuck in a volatile and abusive marriage. And she was really hungry for the opportunity to find her own voice in music. Thankfully, as her hero Sam Cooke once sang, a change was going to come. And that change came in 1966, when Aretha's contract with Columbia finally came to an end, and she escaped her musical purgatory by signing with Jerry Wexler and his Atlantic label. 
under the guarantee that she would have much more artistic control over the direction of her music. So, recognizing her southern gospel roots, Jerry Wexler decided to send Aretha down to Muscle Shoals, Alabama to begin recording her 11th, yes, 11th studio album at Fame Studios. So, Fame Studios, which is often referred to just as Muscle Shoals, was really on a hot streak at this point in time, having recorded hit records with other iconic soul singers like Wilson Pickett and Percy Sledge. So it really makes a lot of sense why Aretha was sent down there to try to capture some of that funky Southern magic. So on January 24th of 67, a then pretty much unknown Aretha Franklin, she walked into the studio and apparently announced to the assembled musicians, get your damn shoes on, you're getting someone who can really sing. Then she sat down at the piano and began playing. So here's a quick clip of Dan Penn, that legendary singer, songwriter, and producer who was there the day Aretha first walked through the door, followed by a little bit of Aretha herself discussing their recording process. She walks in right over there. And she's got this aura around her pretty thick. I mean, the girl was special. I remember watching the guys, being good Southern boys, they carry on with anything except looking or dealing with her. So she walked right over to the piano. She sat there a moment, and then she just hit this unknown chord, I would say. Didn't anybody have to say we're about to cut? We did what we called head sessions at that time, and there was no real music written for it. The musicians would just listen to what it was I was doing, and then they would decide what they were going to do around that. So as uh, Retha mentioned, the process at that time was fairly loose, and the house band, who were known as the Swampers, would essentially just follow her lead and try to fall into a groove. So at first, this process was... A little bit messy, as you might imagine, but eventually everyone got in sync and they recorded their first track within 20 minutes. A song called I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You, the title track of our eventual album. So that song, which begins with the immortal line, You Are a No Good Heartbreaker, announced to the world that Aretha Franklin had finally arrived and that she was not, excuse my language, to be fucked with. So for the first time in her career, she hadn't recorded another jazzy sing-along, but Really a passionate and fiery record that blended gospel, R&B, rock and roll together and that allowed her to really, you know, do her thing with that voice of hers. In other words, the queen had arrived. Let's take a listen. This is I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You. I love you. 
After putting that track in the can, the group immediately started working on a song that had been written for the session by Dan Penn and Chips Moman called Do Right Woman, Do Right Man. And according to those who were there, everything was clicking together so well that the atmosphere became more like a party. People broke out the booze. Everyone kind of recognizing the magic that was occurring before their eyes. And then, well, this part of the story gets a little murky, but most accounts agree on some basic facts. So at some point during that recording session, Aretha's husband and manager, Ted White, uh, went on to accuse one of the studio's trumpet players of making a pass at Aretha, and the two ended up getting into an all-out fistfight in the studio. So famed studio owner Rick Hall, he promptly fired the trumpeter, but White was still uh, angry, and he whisked Aretha away from the studio with the second song, Do Right Woman, Do Right Man, only halfway finished and still on that tape machine. So in a futile attempt to smooth things over, Rick Hall decided to go to the hotel room where the couple were staying. But yet again, the situation spiraled out of control and another fistfight ensued with her husband. Uh, Some people even claiming that shots were fired. Either way, the next morning, Aretha and Ted got on a plane and nobody heard heard from him again for about two weeks. So with his new star missing in action and only one and a half songs recorded... Atlantic Records had Jerry Wexler was in a pretty precarious situation. Um, desperate or maybe inspired, Wexler decided that he would print several copies of the finished song, I Never Loved a Man, and send them to influential DJs around the country. And before long, fans were, you know, who had heard the tracks were really clamoring for the new Aretha single, and distributors were practically begging Wexler for more copies. So aside from the obvious problem of a missing Aretha Franklin, Wexler was also faced with not having a B-side to the record, which at that time meant that a single could not be properly released. You needed an A and a B, and he had A and half a B. The bright side, though, was, you know, pretty quite and bright indeed. Uh, on their very first attempt, Wexler and Aretha Franklin had produced a bona fide hit song, which was the very first of her career, and obviously you just heard it. If you had heard that on try one, I think you would be pretty happy as well. So despite the pressure from everyone to release the single for sale, Wexler decided to wait patiently for Aretha to contact him, understanding that, you know, the ball was in her court. So finally, merciful, mercifully, that, fault, that call eventually arrived. And Aretha told Wexler that she'd be willing to complete the album <clears throat> and would continue to work with the Muscle Shoals musicians, but under one condition, she was not going back to Alabama and they'd have to meet her in New York City. So when the band arrived, the second attempt at recording would prove to be much smoother than the first, and the group quickly fell in line behind Aretha's leadership. So the first order of business was to complete the half-finished song, Do Right Woman, which they did in one take. So after nearly six years of waiting, Aretha had finally completed her first two hit songs in just two days of studio work. Although, it took a little longer because she disappeared. So the single went on to sell a million copies and reached the top 10 of the Billboard charts. Anyway, over the course of the rest of the week of recording, Aretha and the team from Muscle Shoals completed another nine songs, five of which are covers and the rest of which were original compositions from Aretha herself. So amongst the covers on that album were versions of Sam Cooke's The Change Is Gonna Come, which Aretha notably changed in the lyrics to My Change Is Gonna Come. Ray Charles is down in my drown in my own tears, and most significantly Otis Redding's respect, 
which I don't have to tell you, eventually became one of the most iconic songs of all time. So while some of the songs on the album had been suggested to Franklin or from others, covering Respect was all of her idea. So as she recalled a few years back, she first heard Otis Redding's Respect in 1965 and was immediately inspired. Quote, I had just moved out of my father's home and had my own little apartment. I was cleaning the place and I had a good radio station on. Then I heard it. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. I felt I could do something different with it. My sister Caroline, who was an RCA recording artist, and I got together. So together, Aretha and her sister uh, began tweaking the song and added the small but now iconic pieces to it, like socket to me, the spelling out of respect, and that re, 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 re build up to the song. They recorded it on Valentine's Day. So later in 1967, uh, after the song had been released as a single, Otis Redding, uh, who was playing at the Monterey Pop Festival, playfully described respect as, quote, the song that that girl took away from me, a friend of mine. This girl just took my song. And indeed she had. So in addition to turning a song about domestic tranquility into a fearless female anthem, Aretha had also produced what would become one of the most iconic songs of her career, and in fact, all time. So as Peter Gerlinek, the author of Sweet Soul Music, said, quote, Aretha shattered the atmosphere, the aesthetic atmosphere. She set a new standard which, in some ways, no one else could achieve. All right, back to the album, though. So among her original compositions were the tracks Don't Let Me Lose the Stream, Baby, Baby, Bave Me, Save Me, which we heard at the very top, and Dr. Feel Good, all of which really held up to the covers. So before this session, Aretha's songwriting abilities had never really gained much attention from anybody, and I think you could argue that they still haven't. I think a lot of people would be surprised at how many of her own hits she wrote. And the same could be said for her piano playing, which was equally undeniable on this record. So in his example of her strengths at both songwriting and piano playing, let's take a listen to Dr. Feelgood, that bluesy, sexy track that singer Luther Vandross once observed was, quote, basically nothing more than a 12-bar blues. But the lyrics and her piano playing, it's it's like something my mama's mama listened to, one of those original ladies like Bessie Smith or Ma Rainey. Without further ado, this is Aretha Franklin with her original track, Dr. Feelgood. I don't want nobody Always Sitting around Me and my man I don't want nobody Always 
So the album I Never Loved a Man the Way I Loved You was finally released on March 10th of 1967, just 10 days before Aretha's 25th birthday. And it quickly rose to number one on the R&B charts and number two overall. So all of a sudden, the impossible became the inevitable and an unheralded singer on Columbia Records became the queen of soul and an icon of the feminist and civil rights movements almost overnight. Before we move on, I do want to quote a few artists about the importance of that particular album on their careers. So Bonnie Raitt said, quote, as a young woman and already an avid music fan, especially of R&B roots and blues, I was totally blown away the first time I heard Respect on the radio. I had to get the whole album and Aretha became and has remained my all-time favorite singer and influence. She's simply the greatest singer I've ever heard. The sheer beauty, power, and range of her voice, her exquisite phrasing, her ability to express passion, heartache, defiance, vulnerability, and strength, all modeled for me what a full-grown, authentic woman could be. Alicia Keys, perhaps the most popular R&B singer of this generation, has called it the greatest album of all time and her biggest single inspiration. Lee Fields of the great Lee Fields and the Expression said, quote, that album had a super effect on me, and I think everyone else at that time. That album truly epitomized what we, call, what we now call soul music. It was a happy merger of gospel and secular music. And Rob Argen of The Zombies said, quote, When Atlantic Records signed her in 67 and showed such understanding of her gospel roots, I was totally blown away by her talent. What a fantastic flowering it was. A gorgeous combination of a glorious voice and material and production perfectly tailored to that voice. Aretha has, in my opinion, a technical ability the equal of any soulful singer there has ever been. And she is also a wonderfully expressive, soulful pianist. What a fantastic amount of pleasure Aretha has given to those of us to whom music is important. And I've got one final quote that I actually found right before recording this from the great uh, soul singer Billy Preston, who said, I don't care what they said about Aretha. She can be hiding out in her house in Detroit for years. She can go decades without taking a plane or flying off to Europe. She can cancel half her gigs and infuriate every producer and promoter in the country. She can sing all kinds of jive-ass songs that are beneath her. She can go into her diva act and turn off the world. But on any given night, when that lady sits down at the piano and gets her body and soul all over some righteous song, she'll scare the shit out of you. And you'll know, you'll swear, swear that if she is still the best fucking singer this fucked up country has ever produced. How's that? So, anyway, that's going to wrap up our discussion of Aretha Franklin's I Never Loved a Man. But do yourself a favor and give it a spin if for no other reason than to remember why she was probably the greatest singer we've ever seen. Long live the queen. Before we wrap things up, I do want to take a moment to thank the good folks at Arts Memphis and the Genium Foundation for their support. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Memphis Musicology on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. Go ahead and like us on Facebook. And if you enjoy this show, be sure to tell your friends about it. All right. Before we uh, hit our last section, I do have a quick little promotional promotional note. So at the Memphis Music Hall of Fame, which is our sister museum to the Rock and Soul Museum, we are starting a concert series that I'm curating. I would love for you to be a part of it. The first one is going to be on September 6th, be honoring Mr. Isaac Hayes. And we've got the great soul singer, Taliba Safia, a young woman here from Memphis who's really making waves. And I think she's 
I think it's going to be a great night. If you haven't seen her yet, be sure to catch her. And once again, we're going to have Isaac Hayes' daughter out to speak. It should just be a great night of celebration. Anyway, back to it. Because we're running a little late today or a little long, we're going to skip the Mud Island mixtape. But I will leave you with Wilson Pickett Stack's hit in the midnight hour because none other than Aretha Franklin herself called it one of her favorite songs of all time, telling Rolling Stone, quote, Wilson Pickett was one of the greatest vocalists of our time. He'd sing off the, he'd sing off the melody, but it was on. He would go into what you would call a squall, a scream that might not be in the key of the song, but it worked. Now, how much y'all going to pay me for these trade secrets? All right, rest in peace, Aretha. Y'all be good out there, and I will catch you next time. Network.com. Power to the podcast.